Welcome to Movable Dough. This is Steve Danielson. Each week on Movable Dough, I sit down with a composer to talk about their lives, their musical journeys, and, of course, their music. Come with me as we explore each unique path into composition and what they have to share with the world. For a complete archive of episodes, as well as access to the shorter segments called Movable Snippets, visit my website, sdcompose.com slash movabledough. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. My guest today is Dr. Craig Hella Johnson. Craig is the founding artistic director of the professional choral ensemble Conspirare. He was the artistic director of the San Francisco-based Chanticleer from 1998 to 99, the director of choral activities at the University of Texas at Austin from 1990 to 2001, and joined the faculty at Texas State as artist-in-residence in 2016. Many of Craig's compositions are published through G. Shermer Publishing, where he works on the Craig Hella Johnson Choral Series. Craig studied at St. Olaf College, the Juilliard School, the University of Illinois, and then earned his doctorate at Yale University. As the recipient of a National Arts Fellowship, Craig studied with Helmut Rilling at the International Bach Academy in Stuttgart, Germany. Craig Hella Johnson, welcome to Movable Dough. Thank you so much. It's sure a pleasure to be with you. So before we go back to the beginning of your musical journey, I just like to jump straight to a major milestone, the founding of Conspirare. So this Grammy-winning ensemble has gained respect and notability over the years for its breathtaking performances. When and how did it all begin? Yeah. I moved to Austin uh, to take the position uh, in the choral program at uh, University of Texas. And as I was here for a, into the first year and second year, I had a lot of wonderful memories I was holding from the, my time in Germany at the International Bach Academy with Rilling and the way they formatted and worked their choirs where singers would come from really all across Europe to come for these shorter stints, maybe four or five days, six days for a rehearsal period and a concert rep that would follow us. You know, generally that was the model. I was observing that in the educational environment, we had all these amazing singers who many of them had come, of course, singing as young tykes in elementary school, middle school, high school, going into college, and then some even master's programs, some DMA, you know, folks who had sung in ensembles this whole period. And then there's kind of a drop off, this kind of cliff that people would fall off. To. Where would these people go um, who had these gorgeous voices and wonderful training and also a whole lot of very refined ensemble skills too. So not just those who are training for operatic programs, say, or musical theater, but folks who really had high level of skill in terms of their ensemble work. And there just wasn't a place for them to go and a place in the culture that valued them. And so I got to thinking about that a lot. I saw that's happening with a lot of students and, um, and then thought about my own experience and what happened in Europe. So we had really this idea to start this group that was, you know, going to become an ensemble that where we would bring people from across the country, a uh, high level of training and a world-class group, um, but kind of we'd fly them in. It's a ridiculous model, <laughs> just so expensive. <laughs> like what? And, you know, why do it when there are so many wonderful singers, you know, available in a city and all of that. So, but there was something about just uh, trying to contribute to the advancement also of 
the professional aspect of the choral experience and the choral offerings in our country. You know, there weren't a lot of places that really set out to say we value singers at this level so much and we want to pay them and give them an opportunity to actually work and uh, earn a part or all of their living doing this thing that they were so good at. So that's how we all got started. And this was like two, uh, not 2000, this is 1992-ish, 93, right in there. And uh, there weren't many folks doing anything like this. And now, of course, we're so excited because this is happening a lot. Yeah. And uh, we're very excited about that and kind of quietly proud of being a part of it. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, and, and it's just thrilling to see that with this all also has come the development of some extraordinary uh, training programs. You know, I think about the vocal chamber music program at Yale for one example, just all these beautiful singers who are going and who can train, um, with this in mind and they all remain you know gifted solo singers so they can continue their vocal careers in that way as well but so anyway that's how we got started it started out as a music festival we were called the new texas music festival so there was no conspirari in the name but the nonprofit started as a festival and we tried to fit in cram in <laughs> as many choral events as we could within a five-day period we kicked out of the kicked our activities off with a B minor mass and the next day it was Dorfle Requiem and Britain Rejoicing the Lamb and then there were Mahler solo concerts and there were so a night of some new works and a couple of commissions and we just kind of all guns blazing you know began and and um and then little by slow we attempted to learn how to be a nonprofit. <laughs> so we made many glorious mistakes along the way. We've learned a lot, but just always with the dedication that at the center of all of our activities would be this professional choir. So that's kind of the beginning of our story. Well, that's awesome. I'd love to go back in time and experience those choral festivals. <laughs> they were really fun. So let's go back to your beginning. So you grew up in Minnesota, correct? I did, yes. So did you grow up with a, a musical family around you? Uh, yeah, music-loving family. Um, uh, my dad was a preacher in a pretty good-sized Lutheran church, uh, which meant, you know, uh, for a young musician, place to play, <laughs> you know, musical playground. Actually, I used to ride my tricycle up down in, in the center aisle and in, in between all the pews, too. So I, did, <laughs> I have a sense of a lot of freedom in the church. But um, but yeah, no, it's I, I I would say jokingly, but kind of a you know a captive audience for a young musician. I was sure. probably by the time I was, I guess, in seventh grade. And so I could give up my paper route and just start playing weddings and funerals. And <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and my mom had, my dad loved to sing. And my mom really had a great natural gift. She didn't get an opportunity for a lot of training. She grew up on a uh, dairy farm way, way up north. And there just wasn't an opportunity much, but she played by ear. And I, there was a lot that came through her natural gift too. And then my parents both nurtured that a lot, but yeah, music love and family for sure. That's awesome. So when you were driving your tricycle through the church, uh, what is it that you wanted to be when you grow up? I wanted to be one of the Mayo brothers. <laughs> and <laughs> and um, I really, I wanted to be a doctor because I read about the Mayo brothers. And so that was kind of one thing. And then I also really wanted to be a social studies teacher um, oh, wow. I loved my social studies teachers and I loved all the stuff we talk about in civics. And that was kind of my happy place. So that's really what I wanted to do. Music was just 
something I had a blast doing all the time. And I had great piano teacher. We were in the boondocks up in northern Minnesota, but I was fortunate to have a beautiful piano teacher um, in the sort of uh, lineage of Leszczynski. And I mean, it was pretty cool, Doknani. Um, she found her way up there. She married a dentist who loved to hunt. And so she had to follow him up there. And I just got lucky that way. And then um, and I, I ended up getting an organ teacher uh, at the University of Minnesota Duluth. And most people don't understand this when I say it, but we would drive south to Duluth. And um, and then I would have weekly or every other week lessons with him. And that was about an hour and 15 minutes away. So it's kind of a commitment for my family. Yeah. So when was it that you realized that music was something you wanted to do with your life? Well, yeah, you know, I was just doing it all the time um, through high school. And I, I think I was pretty by high school. I was pretty clear that this was a deep love of mine. So I was a music major at St. Olaf. I was a piano major, actually. Okay. And I sang in choir first year of the freshman TTB choir. And uh, uh, I should say two Bs, TTBB. <laughs> and then um, uh, and then I sang for three years in the St. Olaf choir and went on tour and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I just, it, it had not really, I was studying conducting. My, my kind of passion got lit to be an orchestral conductor. And that's where my first conducting interest was. And uh, got to hear the Minnesota Orchestra frequently and in a rehearsal had some really inspirational moments sitting in that play, in orchestra hall in Minneapolis, uh, just in rehearsals. And so I was really lit up for that repertoire and um, had never really thought about going into choral music as a profession. You know, I just, um, my senior year, I, uh, I only really wanted to go into one program. They were only taking like one or maybe two people. They had probably 50 applicants for a program and I wasn't one who was accepted. Uh, um, I won't name the place because they had just a ridiculous <laughs> audition process where they would line all 50 of us for the audition around the podium, around the orchestra. And I'll never forget, it was the Schumann First Symphony and they would just keep going round and round. Everyone would get like five minutes and wherever the last conductor left off, the next conductor would pick it up. So, I mean, and I got these measly little measures in the adage. <laughs> this is my shot. So, I mean, anyway, I, I got a rejection letter from them and I was sitting there at the end of my senior year, kind of putting all my, having put all my eggs in that basket, kind of thinking, and everyone's asking, what are you going to do? And I got very kind of, well, you know, we say strangely, coincidentally, surprisingly, someone kind of caught wind of this and Kenneth Jennings had shared this news with some folks at the University of Illinois. I was offered kind of a beautiful fellowship to just go study with, wouldn't have been any cost to me to do a master's in choral conducting at U of I. Um, yeah, I took a moment to think about it and it was kind of like I've said before, sometimes I, I thought, well, choral music, huh? I mean, in Minnesota, we just, you know, you try and get it out of sleep, you brush your teeth and you sing in a choir, you know, it's just, a, it's just <laughs> right. how it rolls. You don't think about going into it really. I, I didn't. And, um, but all of a sudden it's sort of like, uh, realizing you're in love with that person you've been friends with for so many years. And yeah, you know, of course I love this. And, you know, so from that moment on, I was really dedicated. Um, I also kind of struggled a lot with with piano. I, I loved piano and I thought, I, so I went to Juilliard for one last hit of after Illinois I was there for a year and did, did the masters and um, 
and I, but I'll just, it was so much lonely time in the practice room. And I said, I really want to be with people. I, uh-huh. I am an introvert, but I'm one of those introverts who really needs to be with people too. And, and I, I love the repertoire. And so from that moment on, I was a uh, full on choral guy. And here I am <laughs> <That's> <laughs> decades <awesome>. later. <laughs> yeah. So when did you start writing music? Um, you know, I wrote as a kid, I wrote these compositions and these amazing, and I want to say, I'm pretty sure hideous orchestration <laughs> where, you know, cause I was, I kind of had free reign of that church balcony and I would invite all my friends from band, all that we could fit up there in that balcony and, you know, all the flutists with their legs crossed in the bad posture, you know, they were all up there. Uh, in the balcony with me and me blasting away at the organ. And so, I mean, I was always writing stuff, but yeah, I did a little bit of songwriting in college, a little bit. Uh, and all along, I just kind of wrote when there was maybe a need or a, like a functional need. And as a conductor, sure. it's always like, say with Conspirare, here's a program. One of the pieces we'll talk about today is just one of these where there's something that needs to go here in this spot. I get the feeling for it. I just can't quite figure out. I can't find it anywhere. Uh, can't determine what that is. And so I'd write something. And this would be, yeah, this happened again and again for me. And I never had any intention to share these things either. It was very kind of functional. I'm a working musician. And yeah. And then after a while, I had a couple of friends kind of, I don't know, do some kind of intervention really, but they were like, Craig, you're kind of being really selfish. Why don't you ever share this? And I never, I thought, well, God, I'm not going to share it. I'm not a composer. You know, I'm, I'm doing this for practical reasons, you know, and I'm just, it's just kind of part of the dailiness of it all. So, I mean, that's how I started. Um, just kind of in the mix of things. Um, and I never wore that hat, you know, like for a lot I didn't study to be a conductor. Obviously, as a conductor, you're studying scores all the time and you're studying in depth what composers are doing and the architecture of pieces. And I mean, so in that sense, it's a very deep study, but, you know, it's a very different thing to put yourself on the line and to make a decision. And I'm a big improviser. So that part of making a final decision is painful to me, just like, you know, when there are when the universe is filled with thousands of options, you know, to have to choose only one is, is, hurts. so anyway, I just, um, yeah, gradually, I mean, it's still strange to this day, you know, I started publishing these things because people had asked, could we publish these? And it kind of, that's how I fell into it. And, um, and I didn't even use the word for a long, long time. Uh, even though I was being commissioned and I just didn't, you know, have that composer, label on my on my cap and uh and then you know a couple of friends of a different sort probably came in for another intervention and they said stop doing this sort of minnesota self-deprecating thing you know if you write music (laughs) you're a composer it's not that complicated and so i was grateful for all those helpful friends along the way so i am a composer i'm on a podcast talking to wonderful you you're talking to composers and so I've kind of let go of all that I I am a composer and I'm a ranger and happy to be so but that's how it all started well that's awesome so in addition to composing you're also a well-known conductor as you've mentioned uh your programming has been lauded for its storytelling and connectivity Uh, on your website there's actually mention of your signature collage style of programming uh what is this and how can other conductors tap into it 
I'm asking for a friend, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Happy to pass this on for your friend. You know, um, that's not a word that I ever uh, initiated. I think some people were just trying to figure out what the heck is he doing, you know, and and um, and so they gave it a name. I remember it was a visual artist who first said it out loud, and there were a few people within earshot. Um, we we used to have an office or a studio kind of in this thing called Flatbed Press, and they did these great big, you know, art prints and some great art was going on there. And the, one of the guys, his name was Mark Smith, who kind of ran the place. He said, oh, I think I finally tapped into kind of who you are and what you're doing. He said, you're a collage artist. And I said, hey, that's, that's interesting. Um, uh, sure. And then, you know, I think over time that just kind of took, it's not only the kind of work I do, but it was the thing that sort of at one point, I think um, just kind of took off as kind of an innovative idea that other people could tap into. And I mean, for me, it had a lot to do, Steve, with um, the sort of being, I am a Gemini in terms of my birth date. And there's a sort of Gemini spirit that was always kind of looking, trying to go back and forth between, for example, sacred and secular, you know, um, kind of straddling this line that to me never was that much of a line, you know, isn't everything sacred? Isn't, doesn't the sacred contain everything? And classical music and popular music, or you might say art music and music of the people or something. And those things also, you know, they just, it felt like there were these dividing lines that kind of always just bothered me at a root level or just wouldn't settle with me. And so I think this was simply a way for me to explore that and be authentic to myself. And how can these sort of dualities that were presented to me, I should say, as dualities in all the conditioned learning that we do, how can I kind of come to terms with that in my own way. And so it was like the sacred music talking to the secular music. It was music from, you know, a, a, a popular song by Sting or Paul Simon, you know, talking to, being in dialogue with uh, a, you know, Renaissance motet. Uh, this idea that we're sort of this one long human procession. I just found that always really fascinating to explore. So it was kind of personal the way I got into it. It wasn't started out at all kind of as a like cross uh, crossover or like, um, well, what's the term we use? But anyway, it wasn't sort of just meant in, in those kind of more surface ways. Um, but it was, it was kind of a really deep probing for me because I was trying to find my way and kind of locate myself in this musical world. Um, and that continues to this day. It's kind of a way sometimes I ask questions. It's a way that I try and relate up, relate sort of an ancientness in our experience, in mine and yours and mm -hmm. ours, uh, kind of archetypal, even with what's happening right now. And so, yeah, so I think strange things initially got put together. And when I say strange, I just mean unusual. Um, they weren't so strange to me. And um, and I remember sometimes thinking, because I grew up in this, like we all kind of did, it's very orthodox choral training. And um, yeah, and 
so I remember looking at some of my printed programs and thinking, oh gosh, we just please don't send these to any of my colleagues. <laughs> you know, they'll think I'm kind of crazy. And because on paper they look wackadoodles. Um, but they had sort of structural meaning to me. Sometimes they even felt like there was kind of a liturgical framework underneath. There was always a sense of an architecture under it. So it's always been kind of deceptive in the sense that they're, you know, it looked like, hey, I'm doing pop music with classical music. And so that's where some people have kind of missed the point of some things I've been doing. Uh, and that's okay, because on the surface, it can look like that. But it's, <laughs> it's something else that I've been kind of exploring with a bit. Yeah, well, unfortunately, I'm a Virgo, so I guess I, I'll, I'll miss out on it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, you can <laughs> Yeah, you can, you can. So, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. I know that you have also been asked to fulfill many speaking engagements over the years. Uh, you gave a TEDx talk in Austin, Texas in 2012. Uh, I heard you speak in Portland at an ACDA conference in 2018. Uh, what are you asked to talk about when you receive these invitations? Wow. Um, it's really shifted. Um, part of it seems to be shifting because of COVID and what we went through. You know, so that's been interesting. But also, I think um, a lot of people at this point they feel like there's maybe something I might share or a type of sharing I might do that would just be of interest to their class. They're not quite sure what the it is. And, but they'll say, could you just kind of come and do your thing? <laughs> and so, you know, I have to kind of probe a little bit more. I love it when I get to just go talk about music too, because that's just really fun just to be purely about either a piece of music or, but, but I really get that right now, all of us who find ourselves in choral music too, I'll speak for myself anyway, that we have this medium that can be so powerful as a connecting device for us members of the human family and for can be such a healing uh, instrument. And I think people want to want to tap into that. Uh, there's a way in which, uh, you know, one of the things that I speak about a lot is what as uh, conductors and composers uh but what the conductors i'll speak of first like um how can we I, I speak a lot about how do we reveal the essence of a piece and sort of what is it to be like this paradox of fully involved in trying to bring another uh, composer's work to life to reveal its essence and at the same time you know get out of the way you know, how can we let the pieces, it's a, it's a kind of a role of great uh, humility. And at the same time, it takes all kinds of, you know, forethought, courage um, to try and say, I want to, this is, this is the beauty of this craft as a conductor, which I just I love. Um, and this is where I love getting, you know, getting, trying to get inside the head, the heart, the sensibility, the transmission of what this composer has created. It's a real servant position it's serving that essence and so you know i think i get asked that a good bit for conductors for teachers uh for composers too and i think and then that can tip in just from the composer standpoint to how how can we uh, drop into get to know our own essential nature and what does it mean to write from that place um i think those are 
conversations I'm asked to kind of, well, things I'm supposed to ask to speak about and then conversations to facilitate. Uh-huh. Lots of other things too. But. <laughs> so is it easier for you to speak in front of a crowd or to conduct a whole concert of conspirare? Hmm. I mean, I think I've gotten better. I would say for sure the introvert in me would have said 10 years ago, 15 maybe, um, let me be a musician. You know, I just, that's where I am in my home place. And then the speaking, like going to speak at conferences, you know, I feel, I used to feel like I would admire people who kind of had their, their approach kind of down. They just kind of, they could step in and just do it. And it felt like there were always helpful, 10 helpful tips or do this. And, you know, and I, I really, <laughs> I tried to be that for a while as a younger guy. I thought, well, here I am been invited. And so let me try and I never felt, I think they were okay, but I always felt like it wasn't quite bringing the, the, the gift I was meant to share. I didn't know how to do that. So, so I think the older I've gotten, the more courage I have found to just be myself, you know, and to really just say authentically what's true in my experience and in my observation. And um, then all of a sudden that aspect has become a lot more joyful you know it's not about sharing something and how will it be received will it be will people like it you know i mean just kind of trying to be brave to let go of all that and say what's my purpose here actually on this planet and and how am i i feel like all of us every one of us you me and everybody who might hear this we're all given sort of in the words of one of my own dear mentors and teachers um a certain medicine to bring to the world you know, and sometimes we can name it and other times it's harder to name, but we know when we're tapping into it after a lifetime of kind of exploring. Um, and so I, I, I love to both tap into my own, I guess you can say medicine or gift, kind of the same thing, tap into my own gift, try and share from that place just honestly and openly, you know, and however it's received is not up to me. Uh, and then to really try and encourage, support, and empower others to do that very same thing. What medicine are you meant to bring to the world and uh, in any context, you know, and, and that really guides me. And and all of a sudden, it just became a whole lot more fun, you know, when the pressure's off for me to have to be something or someone I'm not. Yeah, that's awesome. So, all right. I got one more question for you before we take a break. So in April 2013, you were named the official Texas State Musician. Only the second classical musician received that honor. What duties were included with that title? Well, it was cool. I will say, first of all, it was of all nice things that can happen in a professional life. That was just sort of one of my favorite possible things ever. Because I'm a total transplant. I mean, I'm a total Minnesota kid. All my grandparents came from Scandinavia, all that kind of stuff. Dropped me a big in the big republic of Texas, <laughs> like and and so I mean I, I I'm not from here, kind of we might say, and um, and it was just one of the most touching things in the world to sort of know that, you know, other recipients of this were of this award were like Lyle Lovett and Willie Nelson, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it just it meant the world to me for some, you know, and the guy who told me was this guy who was like six foot five a big 10 gallon hat he was in the lobby of one of our concerts, and he kind of whispered it to me in advance he wasn't supposed to say it but <laughs> um i just the whole experience that w- meant just a ton to me and um 
so uh, yeah, the duties were, it was totally free. It was like an honorary thing. You could actually do nothing and just walk around and tell your friends, or you could actually use it as you know, kind of a platform. Um, it's like a poet laureate in a state too. And so I did a couple projects. There was a recording project. There was a, a supporting teachers thing we did. And, you know, I didn't feel like <clears throat> in, in just a, a short year's time too that one has to, um, I, I mean, there wasn't enough time to get traction on big things, but uh, yeah. But every once in a while, I mean, it kind of feels like some some Texas uh, street cred for this there you go. Norwegian kid. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll listen to some of Craig's compositions. Welcome back. This is Steve Danielson. I'm talking today with Dr. Craig Hella Johnson. We're going to start today with your piece, Song from the Road, for SATV Devisi and Piano. So I thought this piece was beautiful. Soaring vocal lines that seemed to blossom out from each other. Uh, I understand this piece was commissioned through Chorus America. So I'd love you to tell us about the commission and what this piece means. Thank you. Uh, yeah, this was a commission. The, the Chorus America does these, um, I don't know if it's annually, but pretty with some frequency over the past decade or so, and a commission for a certain type of choir. And they'll ask for a number of groups. And I don't remember, I don't, maybe there were, I don't remember, but I think it was 14 or 15 choirs that each contributed to do sort of a premiere of this in their region. And uh, so it's lovely. So it's a neat connection with all kinds of choirs. And I'd said, you know, I, I would agree to this if if we could kind of co-anchor this with a co-commission of the text uh, with my dear friend, Michael Dennis Brown. And um, then I would be especially delighted to do it. And so we set about this and uh, it was an interesting birthing process or gestation or whatever. <laughs> um, it was, I don't know, I just couldn't land it. I could feel the sense of where I wanted to go with it. And as I have often do with Michael, I'll kind of share ideas. This is the sort of direction. I'll also send him maybe a few pages of texts and words so that I kind of spark that from the beginning. He's very open to that and say, this is where I'd like to go. This is kind of the image and the atmosphere. And then he would send texts back and we're real good about, you know, just getting deep in there pretty early. And the texts were all really interesting, but they weren't it. Just this, this little uh, scratches that he had sent. And so it took us a long time. And he would tell you too, if you were on, like it was a painful process. <laughs> um, and then I remember uh, it was probably the sixth iteration of words he sent I said, now we're getting close. This feels like we're really close. And then it felt like in the next iteration, it landed. Yeah. And um, um, yeah, I, I rather have come to love it myself, um, kind of outside of it. It's uh, Eugene Rogers with uh, University of Michigan had done the very, very first performance. And he just, they all let out with such a gorgeous performance of it. So that was what the, the very first uh, sounds that were ever made for this piece. And um, yeah, it feels sort of like it has an interior restless kind of furtive quality sort of about this journeying on our lives. And, um, but yeah, so that was a little bit of how that piece got started. And so what, what is the, what's the heart of this piece? What does it mean to you? 
maybe a, a recognition that kind of throughout our lives, you know, the things we experience, inner peace, joy, hope, um, these are kind of fruits of remembering who we are, each of us on our own journeys, of course, just traveling, as we say, this road of life, song from the road. And and yet we find ourselves at the same time, even though on individual journeys, journeying together. So that was a little bit of where the, what the framing of it was. And then I had always said to folks, it's kind of intended as a quiet call to return home, to discover yourself and to rediscover really our home with each other. Uh, so just that's, I think, at the core of it. I am how your heart discovers this I, all the hopes that sleep in you. I am every silence calling. I am fountain. I am meadow. I am every secret door. I being that, that life force, that breath of life that we all share in common um, in this very separated life. There's this sense of we all share the common breath. And in my own way that I would describe it, sort of a, everyone carries this spark of the divine within them and we can call it many different things. But so just the rediscovery of that, because at times it's felt like we've all gotten so far away from basic sense of who we are individually and together as a human family. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. All right. We are now going to listen to Songs from the Road performed here by Conspirare.
All right, our second piece today, hopefully I'll say this right, Gitanjali Chants. Yeah, great. Gitanjali Chants. Sure, yeah. All, yeah. I guess I feel like you're free to say it any way you want. <laughs> uh, so this is a setting of verses by Bengali poet Rabindranath Tagore that has yeah, sounds... Tagore, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh, Tagore. Okay. Yep. That has sounds that are both ancient and modern. Absolutely. So did you use any existing chants for this piece or is it all newly constructed? All new, yeah. And so this was one of those pieces we talked in the first part of the podcast about um, sometimes where I would start composing just where there was a need. So this we had a program for, I think it was North Central ACDA. We were going to do a big, we kind of a straight up, just straight choral concert. And then we were going to do a big peace event. So for the actual straight choral concert, I had some things programmed. We were going to do Benjamin Britten, Hymn to St. Cecilia, and anyway, some other things, a couple brand new things and Brahms. Um, but anyway, there was just a little niche in the program right near the beginning that I wanted to do something. I think there are those kind of collecting and gathering pieces that kind of bring an audience. It's kind of a way to meet an audience, to say hello, shake hands with an audience without just beginning with sort of a major work or so this was i wanted to serve a lot of masters you know meet and greet kind of reference the spirit of this cycle and this evening um yeah so i couldn't find it i looked and looked and looked i couldn't quite find the piece that landed for me so i thought I, i'm gonna just write something and then i've always liked kind of returning to chant and i used to call it kind of modern plain chant and musically it wasn't so you know outlandishly modern or avant-garde or anything but it was just present day in English chant. And there's something about that unison singing that is so gathering, certainly for a choir, but also for an audience, there's something that just focuses the listener. And so that from a musical aesthetic standpoint was where I started with it. And then, and then the words were just so fantastic. Um, yeah, it referenced, you know, masters in this hall, um, which is, you know, I th for all the choral conductors who come to those conferences and, oh, in this beautiful text, the opening lines, ever in my life have I sought thee with my songs. It was they who led me from door to door and with them I, have I felt about me. This thought of all these choral leaders and practitioners who have been sort of led about by these songs. And I mean both literal songs, but also kind of that capital S song I, I sometimes say the eternal song. There's something that's captured your imagination, my imagination, people listening here, captured our imagination to call us forth and lead us in this light. You know, I have sought thee with my songs. This is a way we express ourselves in the world as song, people of the tribes, you know, the people of the song. So that's where this one got started. And so this is a, a Christmas piece, correct? No, mm -mm. it's okay. a general. You know, I think you could use it in a Christmas program, but it's not specifically okay. uh, referenced as a Christmas piece. Okay, the, the yeah, the YouTube video that I I was sent had a sort of a Christmas. Yeah, yeah, I think I know that. Yeah, yeah, it was used. It's been used in many Christmas programs. Okay, but it's not a Christmas piece as per se. Okay, fantastic. All right, well, we are going to listen to a performance here from Seraphic uh, from Seraphic Fire with Patrick Dupre Quigley conductor.
Uh, so our next piece, Cattle, Horses, Sky, and Grass. Uh, this piece is the prologue from your larger work, Considering Matthew Shepard. Uh, this, of course, is based on the horrific incident where Matthew Shepard was brutally beaten, left for dead, hanging on a fence just for being gay. And I'm sure this must have been an emotional piece to write. Uh, tell us about this work and about this piece, uh, Cattle, Horses, Sky, and Grass in particular. Sure. Yeah. Um, after a short, quiet opening of this, the large work, the whole oratorio is about, depending on Tempe, 92 to 100 minutes long. And um, there's a very short, short opening passage, which uses, uses a quote from Bach, and then a little sort of cowboy yodel, and then it's into this movement, which this this piece is kind of like the or the orchestral overture almost. It's sort of a meant to set the scene and collect all, and so um, it's quite quite fresh and exuberant, um, uh, and it's uh, it sets the scene for this piece, which the story which took place in very kind of iconic Western United States. You know the kind of John Wayne west and uh it uses references from wyoming uh it's it's a wyoming poet which is just it was so amazing that my colleague helped me discover this poem and right at a time when i again i kind of knew what i was looking for but i hadn't found it yet and uh and then when i saw this poem i thought oh like he wrote this for this piece for for me it, you know right in this place and so yeah it's it's all these images cattle horses sky and grass these are the things that sway and pass um so these very western you know you think of the cattle the horses the sky and fences are also part of this western scene these split rail fences um sets the scene it's kind of about the dance of life these cattle, horses, grass, and sky dance and dance and never die. They circle through the realms of air and ground and empty spaces where I love this. A, a human being can join the song, can circle to and not go wrong. In the last stanza, there are three stanzas to this. Um, and I think I'll just read this. This chant of life cannot be heard. It must be felt. There is no word to sing that could express the true significance of how we wind through all these hoops of earth and mind, through horses, cattle, sky, and grass, and all these things that sway and pass. So, like Steve, this idea that this chant of life, this thing we're trying to understand, what is this life, this beautiful, this terrible, this confounding, this mystical life this chant of life it can't just be heard it it has to be felt there's not like a word that can be spoken nothing could express the true significance of how we wind through all these hoops i mean just the difficulty of life the challenges of life i just felt this poem is also so touchingly compassionate in its observation of our human experience and but the whole thing dances. I mean, it's it's sort of like this eternal dance, which for an oratorio, I'll often say, you know, we don't write oratorios a lot these days. We don't have new oratorios. It's a big commitment. Kind of impaled myself on this for a, a few years. And, but there has to be some aspect of the universal uh, 
within the oratorio framework. However one gets at that as a composer, it's, it's different for everyone, but something must touch the universal for it to really, in my view, contain such a large amount of real estate in terms of time, 90 minutes, 100 minutes. And this poem just captured that. So it's really a kind of the overture. It's in the first part, we call it the prologue of the piece and sets the tone, yeah. the dance. So sort of give us a, an overview of the, of the whole piece in general. Mm -hmm. So it be, very, very beginning, you'll, be, you'll hear the C major prelude from Well-Tempered Clavier of Johann Sebastian Bach. That's, that's a piece um, that is sort of an iconic piece. Everybody, almost just everybody that I know in within miles and miles in, of this country, you know, understand or have heard that piece at some point. Uh, the key of C major is sort of simple. It represents sort of the rightness of being in a state where we are at peace and at balance, which is not really something we know too much in, but it's kind of the sense of this realm that may exist where things are at peace that gets uh the choir sings all 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 the word three times then there's this cowboy yodel yudaluhu so sings the lone cowboy who with the wild roses wants you to be free that's kind of the prequel then i think the piece proper starts um and then you have three stanzas uh and they kind of build and they start to dance more and then because it references this chant of life, the last line of the whole piece is, and all these things that sway and pass. So it balances, like Steve, the sort of the eternal with the temporal, the temporary, the, the fleeting things, all things that die. And yet we have this sense of this eternalness in our lives somehow. So, um, and, and so it ends with that. The last thing we hear is the altos repeating that over and over. And all these things that sway and pass, and all these things that sway and pass. There's a little insertion in here that wasn't from the poet, but we just sing, I'm alive, I'm alive, I'm alive, golden. And I'll just tear, share with you, in the late nights, early mornings, the kind of times when one feels most alone as a creator this phrase kept kind of haunting me just the text i'm alive i'm alive i mean i felt kind of haunted by it spooked by it uh, i really was like get out of my head um but there was I, all i will say is that it just felt like those words wanted to make themselves felt in this place in this piece and so I kind of honored that deep intuition and that deep inner voice. And I'm alive. I'm alive. I'm alive. So that's awesome. Okay. Well, we are going to listen to Cattle, Horses, Sky, and Grass here performed by Conspirare.
Oh, 
All right. Our last piece is also from Considering Matthew Shepard. Uh, this is The Fence After the Wind. So talk to us about this piece and how it fits into the into the whole. Sure. Um, powerful words here, I will say, by Leslie Newman, beautiful poet, who's written a book called October Morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. I mentioned her because her words are just critical to kind of knowing this. It was a series of five fence poems that were used, five of her fence poems. And the fence in my piece is kind of this objective witness of at first and early in the piece, it's the witness to nature, to the blue sky and the trees swaying and thunderstorms in the natural world. And, and eventually this is the fence that then becomes the fence that observes this brutal beating and a fence that holds Matt's body after they tied Matt's body to the fence and he was alone there for 18 hours. So the fence actually sings as a mother. I cradled you just like a mother. Mm. There's the fence that observes um, the thousands and thousands of people who came to the fence to bring a memorial stone or flowers or um, just this seemingly unending procession of people to kind of pay homage and so uh, these poem references, I won't go through them all, but this particular one was the fence after, and then it's not after the wind necessarily, like if we were just to say the fence after the wind, it's the fence after and then slash the wind. And this is just the way the poem was labeled to. Um, the music is, uh, it takes its suggestion of this repeated piano figure, kind of a little ostinato from Villalobos and a wonderful, um, I'm so sorry, I, I, yeah, I was just thinking about Villalobos, Dufaya, um, beautiful lullaby of Dufaya um, for solo voice and piano, which I've always loved. And this came to mind, It's at least it's referenced. Anyone who knows that song will recognize um, it a little bit. And so that's what's placed. And then these poems, these texts are little fragments frowned upon, revered, feared, adored, abhorred, despised, splintered, scarred, idolized, weathered, broken, broken, ripped away, ripped apart, gone, but not forgotten. Many of these could be referencing the fence itself or the, like physical aspects of the fence, the tree that the fence comes from. And simultaneously, there are these images that brings to mind Matt, Matt's body weathered, worn, broken, ripped away, ripped apart. And also the fragility of our own experiences as humans. And, um, and then there's a middle section. So that paints the picture kind of, it's very kind of, um, not pointillistic, but almost as someone would understand what, when I say that. The middle section of the poem I'll just share is about the four winds. The north wind carried his father's laugh. The south wind carried his mother's song. The east wind carried his brother's cheer. The west wind carried his lover's moan. The winds of the world move, uh, move together a prayer to carry that hurt boy home. And so it's a very powerful, beautiful text kind of referencing the four directions, the four winds and 
carrying this beautiful boy's body, you know, home to this sort of eternal breath, eternal wind, winds of the world wove together a prayer. So that's kind of the basic of uh, gist of this. People will sometimes say it's a terrible question to ask a composer, but you know, do you have a favorite movement in, (laughs) in considering Matthew Shepard? So, and you know, like all of one's children or something, you, you know, supposed to say no, I guess. And, uh, I do have a couple uh, sort of very favorite heart moments um, in the piece. And one of the central chants is one of them. And then this movement is another one too. So I do, it's kind of a place where a very important part of my heart sort of resides. All right. Well, we are going to listen to the fence after the wind here performed by Conspirare.
Well, Craig, if my listeners want to learn more about you and your music, where are you located online? Where's where's the best place for them to look? Probably the easiest is, and maybe just maybe even the only place. <laughs> you can Google my name and have at it. You can look at you know Hal Leonard Publishing for the music, and um, and Alliance has a few of my pieces as well. Alliance Publishing, but I think Kunstbury.org is the simplest way because that's kind of my my home. Okay. Um, so yeah, that's probably the easiest. Are you out there on social media at all? Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of grandpa st- still in Facebook a little bit, a little <laughs> bit of Instagram. I mean, light touches. I'm not, um, I, I sort of observe on TikTok. <laughs> but I mean, I'm sure that's all about to change, you know, so yeah, just a, a little bit. All right. Well, hey, listeners out there, we are wrapping up season six, but the music isn't stopping. Each week, I'll still post new music in the form of a movable snippet. I'll bring you one piece from a composer, give them a chance to tell you about the piece. Movable snippets are available through the Movable Dough feed and help us all keep connected until the next season of interviews. Make sure you're subscribed to Movable Dough so you don't miss any snippets through the season hiatus. Well, Craig, it has been a pleasure to get to know you. I've heard you speak in large crowds, but it's great to talk to you one-on-one. Thanks for joining me on Movable Dough. Thank you so much, Steve. My guest today was composer Dr. Craig Hella-Johnson. If you have a recommendation for a future guest or an idea for the show, please email me at movabledoe at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving.